All right, y'all, turn your Bibles. John chapter 4, a very popular passage, incredibly popular passage. I, I want to let you know that when I began in the first service, I kind of grossed everybody out with what I'm about to tell you, so I'm just giving you a little warning ahead of time just so you know when to be grossed out, and we can all be grossed out together and enjoy that together. Uh, when I was in college, I was a part of a campus ministry that was doing an outreach at the campus that I was on, and we were doing it in one of the largest dorms in the area. I don't remember what the hook was, how to communicate the gospel to the students that were a part of this community that I was a part of in this dorm area. I don't know if it was scientific evidence for the existence of God. I don't know if it was the occult and the supernatural topic. I don't know if it was love, sex, and dating and marriage or something like that. I don't remember. What I do remember is what went wrong. <laughs> I remember that um, I was a part of a skit. Five of us were a part of a skit that we were doing just to do to be intentionally stupid, to kind of cause everybody to relax, to just kind of try to be normal. And so we were doing it like in an SNL-ish stick kind of thing. And we were poking fun at the, at the food commons, the dining commons that everybody eats at at the school. And so my role was to test the food. And I saw some movement and struck the movement of the food. And I did it, I must say, with extraordinarily skill and Oscar-worthy performance. I was very, very good. Uh, but when my part was done, it moved on to the other folks in the skit, and they were doing their part. But while everyone else is doing their part in the skit, I'm standing there, and I'm seeing my roommate out in the audience, and he's trying to get my attention. You know how awkward that is when someone's trying to get your attention, but they don't want everybody to see, and so his, he's darting his eyes, and he's jerking his head, and it was just, it was so strange. I actually was thinking, I wonder if he's having a seizure or something out there. Uh, but about that time that he's trying to get my attention and trying to tell me something that I obviously was not cluing into, I started feeling this warm running water running down my hand. And I knew that I was testing gravy, so I just thought nothing, no big of it. It was gravy. But my friend is out there just like jerking his head like this, trying to get me to look at the ground. And I look at the ground, and there was this bright red expanding pool underneath me. And about the time I start seeing this thing just spreading like that, I'm like, that, what, what is, everybody else is seeing it too. And that's when I looked at my hand and I saw when I struck the plate, I had split it, just a nice split from here to here. You could see inside my hand, it was just open. Yeah, isn't that crazy? It's absolutely crazy. So then, you know, you're in this weird position of how do you, in front of everybody, move. It was just a very awkward thing, very kind of annoying thing, having to get the stitches or whatnot. But I'm saying this because the blood was everywhere. I mean, it is, it's like someone turned on a water faucet. This passage, do you got that image? Isn't that a good image? I want you to have that image. That's the purpose of this image, is to get you... That blood is everywhere. Blood is flowing. Blood everywhere. This passage is bleeding. There's blood all over this passage. It's hemorrhaging. There's Brooks and Dunn have this song called We All Bleed Red. This passage bleeds red. We stand for the hearing of God's word.
Hear now the word of the Lord. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her and said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here and draw water. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying you have, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out to the town and were coming to him. Verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told, us all, told me all I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two more days. And many more believed, <clears throat> and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, 
it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated, y'all. <clears throat> Lord, we ask very um, personally and we ask very boldly that you would cause us to experience this text, that you would grant uh, a breakthrough for all of us, for each person here and for us collectively as a church. So, Holy Spirit, come, we ask in your name, Jesus, amen. This passage is bleeding. It's got red all over it. Uh, there's, racial, there's racial hatred here between Jew and Samaritan. We're talking 700 years of historical hatred so deep it's gotten into the very DNA and cell structure of Jew and Samaritan against each other. They despise each other. And all of it is building and all of it is present at this one place at Jacob's well, this one encounter at Jacob's well. There's religious hatred here between Jew and Samaritan. That's what's going on in verses 19 through 26. You, saw, you got a glimpse of it. There's worship wars going on. What's the right way to worship? They each had two different views. What's the right way to interpret the Bible? They each had two different views. Aren't you glad that doesn't happen anymore? Right? There's nationalistic hatred here, inflicted on both sides. When Israel was taken out by Babylon and they were allowed to come back by the Persians, the folks that were living there were Samaritans, and while they're trying to rebuild the wall and rebuild the temple, the Samaritans are hurling abuse at them. Just nationalistic hatred. And then it gets returned because in Mount Gerizim is where just a stone's throw from this well is where the... Uh, Samaritans worshipped. Well, later on, the Jews completely leveled their temple to the ground. And about 25 years from this event, there's going to be another massacre of about 50 Jews by Samaritan terrorists on their way to Passover. They hate each other. And on top of that, there's also gender hatred here. I mean, can it get any worse, right? Jewish men singled out Samaritan women, especially Samaritan women, to concentrate their hostility. There's a religious document called the Mishnah. Outside the Bible, it's the number one most popular religious document in this time period, at this time, most influential. This is what it says. Samaritan women are menstruants from the cradle, end quote. In other words, they're always dirty. They're always vile. They're always less than. They're always unworthy of love and acceptance. They're always less than human. I mean, is this not a recipe for abuse? It's just setting it up, right? I mean, this happened, what, 2,000 years later, probably, to the Jewish people by a madman himself, dehumanizing them, making them less than human so he can slaughter millions and millions of them. Anytime someone's less than you, it's a recipe for abuse. This passage is bleeding. And John, he just says it this way in an economy of words in verse 9. The Jews, they don't have any dealings with the Samaritans. 
The Apostle Paul, he would, he's a little more epic. You know Paul. He's always more global. He's always more cosmic. He always has a bigger splash on the stage. John's going to zero in on a human being. Paul's going to talk about global realities. And when he does, he's not going to say the passage is bleeding. He's saying, listen, the whole world is bleeding. He says this in Romans. He says, for we know that the whole creation, all the world, he says, has been groaning, groaning. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, he says, groan inwardly. And that word is so powerful. That is a word that's only used for a soldier when he's bleeding out on the battlefield. His life is gushing out of him. He's watching his life leave him. And he groans because he can't do anything about it. That's the word Paul uses to describe the bleeding of the world. To describe you right now, he says, are you're bleeding out. Paul goes epic. John goes into this big, wide world and zeroes in on one individual woman to make his point. Verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. There's a strange phenomenon that happens to you when you lose a lot of blood. Those of you that have lost a lot of blood, you know what I'm talking about. Those of you who don't, it's hard to explain. I don't know what the medical reason is, and I know there are many doctors out here. I, I really don't care to know. It, it, I just don't. I don't need to know. But here's what happens. That's just to say, don't come up and tell me after the service, because I really don't want to know. I'll look at you very politely and smile, and then I'm saying, I'm hungry, I want to go home. Um, here's what happens. You get ravagely thirsty. You need water so bad, the thirst is unbearable. So, of course, Jesus meets a bleeding world, zeroing in on a bleeding woman who symbolizes all of us at a well. Of course he does. There was a woman from Samaria who came to draw water. Well, of course she did. She's thirsty. John scholar Andreas Kostenberger, I think that's how you pronounce his name, he says thirst in the Bible always has two levels to it. There's the literal level where it's physical thirst, which is among the most intense and imperative human cravings in existence. But the, the literal level is always introducing an image or a metaphor that gets at a deeper level, that gets at your very roots of your existence, that gets into the very fabric of the human condition where he describes Scripture describes thirst as a metaphor for the need for God. This desperate, cosmic, soul-ravaging thirst for God. This is why Jesus says to her in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God, listen, the shock here, Jesus is saying, she's like, why are you asking me because of all the hostility, right? All the bleeding. Why are you asking me for a drink? And he's saying, listen, the shock here isn't that I'm asking you for a drink. The shock here is you're not asking me for a drink. 
Verse 10, if you knew the gift of God, who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So what does her thirst look like? We're going to get to the living water in a minute, but we've got to look at her thirst. We've zeroed in on the big thirst of the national gender uh, racial. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff going on in this passage, but what does this one particular human being, this one particular woman at this particular time, what does her thirst, her need for God look like? Answer number one, loneliness. Isolation. Do you see this? Look at verse six. It was about the sixth hour, which is 12 o'clock at noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. No one, this is the hottest time of the day in a Middle Eastern country in the ancient world. No one goes to get, no one goes to the well to get a drink of water. Just the walk over there would kill you. No one goes to the well in the middle of the day to get water. So that tells you something. Why is she going in the hottest part of the day? And not only that, she's going alone and no one, no one does that. Why? Because in the Bible, throughout the Bible, and all ancient literature, going to the well was a social event. It was, it was a major community event. Everybody would go at the coolest parts of the day, and they would all go because it was a social time, and it was a time to reconnect, and it was a time to do your stuff together. It was a time to get out of the house. And why? Because women did it. Because if men did it, we'd go at midnight, so we didn't have to talk to anybody, and we didn't have to see anybody. But in this particular culture, in this particular way, the way that the gender worked itself out is the women went to get the water, and of course they made it a party. They made it a social event. And they all did it together, but she's not. That tells you incredible isolation. It tells you if she has healthy relationships, they're broken. It tells you she doesn't have healthy relationships. It tells you she's so riddled with shame, she doesn't want to talk and be seen by anybody. So she will, she will go when it's a hundred and something degrees to get her water so nobody sees her. She's alone. She's isolated. What does her thirst look like? It looks like, let's get real frank, her sexual history. Can we? Her history with men, verse 16, she said, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. She responds, I have no husband. And Jesus, Jesus, yeah, you're right, you don't. In fact, um, you've had five. Here's the deal, the word for husband in the ancient literature is the same for men. So I don't think the interpreter made a decision in ESV and put in husband. I don't think it's husband. Come on. It's men. For you have had five men, and the one you now have is not your husband. Either she's not married to him, or it is someone else's husband. What's going on here? What does her thirst look like? You know what her thirst looks like? She is trying to quench her thirst with men. Men. I mean, maybe this, this one, I will get the intimacy and I will get the love. I will, I will be finally satiated. Now, before you dudes start checking out, uh, you do this too. We do this too. 
Just flip it around and it's now with women. And then, you know, I was thinking about this. Those of you that struggle with same-sex desires, same-sex attraction, you need to know that the Bible is so helpful for all of us because what the Bible is saying is the root cause for that drive, that need is ultimately a need for God is what the Bible is saying in this passage. So, so a woman's going to a man is driven by the thirst and the need for God. A man's driven to go for women to satiate him. Romance, sex, whatever it is, is driven by this insatiable thirst, this raging thirst, this need for God. And it's the same for those that struggle with same-sex desires. So where are you bleeding this morning? I mean, the text is just because she represents all of us. Where are you bleeding? Where are you thirsty? This passage is bleeding, but Jesus heals. Verse 13, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again. The water that I give him will become within him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That is so, so important. This is present tense. This is a welling up inside the heart. This is a reality that happens now. It is a welling that begins. It's a welling that continues. It's a welling that's up and down as life goes up and down, but it's a welling that's possible and a welling that's available and a filling of the heart that touches you and me and the thirst unlike anything else because it's living water. And it wells up. And when it wells up, it means it can well up and go into your marriage. It can well up and go into your parenting. And it can well up and go into your friendships. And it can well up and go into the way you handle money. It can well up and go into the way you look at women and men and relationships and romance and sex. Water has this unique ability of filling anything and everything. This welling up goes into every nook and every cranny and every area of our life and heals it because it's living water. What is this healing that Jesus brings? What is the living water, though? Do you, you, what is it, though? Okay, that's great. The metaphor works for me. It's water. I, I want that. You want that. Everybody wants that. But what, do you, what are we talking about here? Wells in the Bible are not only sororities for the women, they are also pickup places for the men. In the ancient world and in the Bible, men went to wells to get women. Isaac got his wife at a well. Jacob got his wife at a well. Moses got his wife at a well. The heroes of the Bible found their wives at the well. This is why the text says in verse 27, they, the disciples, when they returned from finding food, 
marveled that he was talking to a woman. Do you see? It's not a Samaritan woman. It text does not say they marveled that he was talking to a Samaritan woman because if it was a Samaritan woman, it would be like, that's the shock. The shock isn't that he's talking to a Samaritan woman. The shock is that he's at a well picking up a woman. Do you notice they marveled and they said, ooh, gee, whew, we caught him. Well, let's not talk about it, okay? It's kind of embarrassing. Do you see verse 4? It says Jesus must pass through Samaria. Why must he pass through Samaria? Must he pass through Samaria because that's the way to, to Galilee? Because Judea is down here, Samaria is here. No, most folks traveled east to the Mediterranean, Jews, because they didn't want to go through Samaria. West to the coast or east along the Jordan, nobody wanted to go through Samaria because they hated Samaria. But the text said Jesus must pass through Samaria. Why? To find his bride. I mean, we just got done being told. Remember what John the Baptist said? He says, listen, I'm just the best man. Jesus is the bridegroom, and that's the bride. We just saw that last week. We are fresh off that text, and now he must go to Samaria. Jesus must go to Samaria to get his bride, his woman. I want you to calculate the number of men in her life. Look at verse 18. How many? Five. Look at verse 18 again. The one you now have is not your husband. That's one more. So what do we have now? You ready? Six. Jesus is what? The seventh man in our life. Seven in the Old Testament is the perfect number. Seven in the Old Testament is the complete number. Seven in the Old Testament is shalom, comprehensive wholeness and peace and perfection Jesus is the perfect man. Jesus is the man she's been looking for her whole life. He's the living water. He heals. When she begins to realize he's the man she's been looking for her whole life, she heals. Watch what happens. It's amazing. Watch how this happens. How do you know she's healed? How do you know she's healing? How do you know she's being put back together again? Well, look at verse 29. She now leaves the well. She now goes into town, and she tells everyone who she sees this. Come. Now, who does this? Please, who does this? Who thinks this is good news? Please raise your hand. Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? How many? I don't even want to tell you what I had for breakfast. When would that come? Hey, come. I want you to meet someone that has told me everything in my heart, everything I've ever did, everything about me. Isn't this incredible? What does this mean? 
You know what this means? This means her shame is healing. Her shame is going away. What do you mean, Jeff? This is what I mean. Where are you bleeding? Where are you thirsty right now? Find it? Got it? I can tell you this. You are bleeding you are thirsty wherever there is shame in your life. You are bleeding and you are thirsty wherever you feel, painfully feel you're not enough. You're not enough to be loved. You're not enough to be accepted. Parents, peers, coaches, teachers, bosses, fellow employees, fellow workers, whatever. You are bleeding and I am bleeding. I am thirsty. I am bleeding wherever I fear failure. Wherever I fear and you fear rejection. And Jesus is healing that in her life. So much so, she doesn't give a rip what they think about her. In fact, she's not even thinking about what they think about her. She's thinking about them. Everyone in this room thirsts to be known and loved. Every single one of you. All of us here are like, I want to be known and I want to be loved. It's very rare you get both of them. Usually you get one. You get loved, but you're not going to get known because if you got known, you're not going to be loved. Do you see how this works? Jesus is knowing her and loving her at the same time God himself is doing that. And it's healing her. It's welling up living water inside of her. I am known and I am loved by God himself. Her shame is leaving her. She's able to re-enter the world, you see? She's not isolated. She's, not going, she's now going into the town talking to everybody. She's now re-entered the world because her shame is healing. Her anxiety is insecurity. All of that's healing. She's re-entering the world. People no longer are holding this dark power of shame over her. She's freeing and getting freed and getting healed from that. Do you see that? Thomas Gardner in his book, John and the Company of Poets, which cost 85 bucks, by the way. I was in shock. But I bought it anyway. Um, says it this way. Think how this must strike her. Not only does he know her sexual history, he has known it all along. When he first spoke to her, he knew it, and he knows it now. Understanding everything about her, he nevertheless drew near to her, responding in a way that gave her the very thing she most desired, that sense that someone could look at her and know her and love her and no longer see her as defiled. What we are watching, y'all, is someone engaging with Jesus and drinking on the spot. water welling up within her on the spot. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. So how do we drink this living water? Okay, she's got it. I want it. You want it. We all want it. Most of us, perhaps. 
First answer is easy. Ask for it. Verse 10, if you knew the gift of God, who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given to you. So the, the, the catch here is we don't know the gift of God. We don't know that it's by grace. We think we got to earn it. We think we got to get our lives fixed up before we can get it. If you knew the gift of God, if you knew the grace of God, and if you knew who it is that's speaking to you, me, Jesus, the one who accomplishes it all, if you knew it, you'd ask. Why do we not ask? We don't ask because we don't know it's by grace. We don't ask because we think we got to do it. We don't ask because we're in this mode of trying to fix our own life. We're in this mode of trying to satiate an insatiable thirst in someone or something. And Jesus is saying, if you, if you knew the grace of God, if you knew this was a gift, it's free. And who it is, you'd ask. It took her to verse 15 to finally ask, sir, give me this water. Five verses, but she eventually does. And that's what it's like for you and me. It's this sense of we try to do it on our own. We were doing that confession, right? We try to control our lives on our own. We try to fix it on our own. Then we get to a point, oh, my word, I can't help ask. It's just like her. Second answer is also easy. You got to hear good news. So first, you got to ask for it. Second is you got to hear good news, and you got to hear it regularly. You got to hear it continually. You got to never stop. You got to be addicted to good news. Watch how powerful this scene is. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. This is so ironic, isn't it? I know the Messiah is coming. Here's the Messiah. I know he's coming, and when he comes, here he is. He's right here. But you know that he's coming, but he's right here, but you don't know. I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. And then, here it is, y'all. I am he. And it all ended for her right there. She changed on the spot. I am your Savior. Living water was released. Living water was welling up in her. If Paul was here, he'd say it this way. Faith comes by hearing good news. When you hear Jesus speaks, I am your Savior. It's not about you trying to fix yourself. It's not about you trying to quench your thirst. It's not about you trying to get Jesus to respond to you. It's about a simple request when you know you, all you have is need. Please help me. And then it's going to hear good news. Last thing, how do you experience or drink living water? Here's the last one. <clears throat> experience it right now. Right now. Look at verse 6. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was the sixth hour. How would you describe Jesus' state, his physical condition right now? Thirsty would be a good word, wouldn't you? Thirsty would be a very good word. This is why he says to her in verse 7, please give me a drink. He might as well have said to her, I'm thirsty. Do you know that that phrase, the sixth hour, the next time and the only time in all of the Gospel of John, the sixth hour will be mentioned again is guess where? His crucifixion at the sixth 
hour, his crucifixion at the hottest time of the day, his crucifixion when all he can do is what? Thirst. Now listen to what John says came from the words of Jesus' mouth on the cross. Several chapters later, he's writing down, Jesus is saying, I thirst. Your thirst gets healed because he's thirsty. Jesus suffers a primal thirst, an eternal thirst, an ultimate, endless thirst due to a woman who looks for men to be God in her life, due to you and me who look to something and someone other than God to be our living water. No, thank you. I can find and make my own way and make my own water and dig my own cistern and make my own well. And when, that, when we do that, we enter the desert. We enter the world of thirst because we've left the living water. And the only way Jesus can get us back is to go into the desert and go into the thirst and take it for us. 